Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. What is up? Welcome to the Los Angeles Dodgers podcast on the Believe Network. I'm J.P. Hornstro with the Southern California News Group. I'll tell you what's up. Jake Lamb is up. Freddie Freeman is not going to cry about leaving Atlanta. At least not anymore, not publicly. And as I record this, the Dodgers have lost back-to-back games to the Colorado Rockies. Doesn't Coors Field just have a way of bringing pitchers back down to earth? A little ironic given the altitude there. All right, I wanted to start this episode with this Freddie Freeman story because of how unusually it has all played out. The plot points have all gotten their share of ink or whatever it is people write with on the internet. Uh, But I wanted to recap the sequence of events that has caused this storm of stories for anybody who missed it. So let's take it back to March. Okay, the lockout ends. Freddie Freeman is still a free agent. Freddie Freeman's agent, Casey Close of Excel, calls the Atlanta Braves. Freddie Freeman's former team. Here's where it gets interesting. This is according to Buster Olney. I'm just going to read from his ESPN story that he filed on Tuesday. The Braves made a $135 million five-year offer that was still on the table in the first days after the owner's lockout ended. As reported in March, Close, the lead negotiator for Excel, contacted Alex Anthopoulos, the head of baseball operations for the Braves, and presented two proposals on behalf of Freeman significantly higher than that $135 million offer, giving the team an hour to respond. The Braves bumped their offer to $140 million, not close to Close's proposals. When that deadline passed, Sources say Close and Anthopoulos agreed that there were no offers on the table. The Braves, believing the closest deadline meant that Freeman was about to conclude a deal with another team, likely the Dodgers, quickly pivoted to make a blockbuster deal for Oakland Athletics All-Star Matt Olson and signed 27-year-old Olson to an eight-year, $168 million contract. That effectively ended any chance Freeman would return. All right, now I've heard of agents, even owners, using this negotiating tactic before. You got one hour, here's the deal. It's not unheard of in baseball. It's even used during normal off-seasons, when the time constraints are more arbitrary. This off-season, Freddie Freeman might have told Casey Close, his agent, look, I want to know where I'm playing as soon as possible, because... I want to have as close to as normal a spring training as possible. Okay, so the lockout ends in March. Two days pass. Freeman still doesn't have a team. There's some real pressure there. Okay, that's reasonable. Casey Close imposes the deadline. The deadline passes. Then Freeman signs with the Dodgers. Six years, $162 million. Not entirely unlike five years, $140 million with an extra year tacked on. Freddie Freeman does his introductory press conference with the Dodgers. Someone asks him if he saw Alex Anthopoulos, the Braves general manager, giving a press conference a couple days earlier announcing the Matt Olson signing. Because Anthopoulos had cried 
during this press conference got a little teared up while discussing the end of the Freddie Freeman era. Someone asks Freddie, what did you think of those tears? To which Freeman responds, quote, I saw them. That's all I'll say. <laughs> now, I'm not sure if somebody has asked Alex Anthopoulos what he thought about Freddie Freeman's tears. Did you see his press conference on Friday in Atlanta? Oh, my goodness. I have not seen a man cry that much outside of a rom-com. I couldn't watch it. I couldn't finish it. It was painful. Clearly, Freddie Freeman has changed his tune. He's not making quips about Alex Anthopoulos' predilection for crying. Apparently, this is according to Buster Olney, Freeman and Anthopoulos spoke at some point. And after that, Freeman had no trouble participating in a ceremony at Truist Park over the weekend. Here's what Buster Olney wrote. He said he wholly embraced the ceremonies last weekend, which included a ring presentation from his friend and former manager, Brian Snitker. Snitker, seeing Freeman's emotion, encouraged him to relax. Now that would take a few days. <laughs> it's a few days later, I think Freddie Freeman has relaxed, but it took a few days. And I guess what fascinates me about this story is how we've seen Freeman's about face from first blaming the team, more about what he didn't say than what he said, and then blaming his agent. By firing him. And this is played out so publicly. That never happens. All this usually happens behind closed doors. Uh, but it got to the point that Freeman had to come out and say, in effect, no, I'm, I'm glad to be a Dodger. I can move forward now. How bad does that situation have to be that Freeman fires his agent tears up at the press conference, and then has to turn around and say, no, no, don't worry, I'm happy to be a Dodger. Man, you know, his agent, Casey Close, is going to collect the commission on the contract with the Dodgers no matter what. Hired, fired, he's got that commission coming his way. And whoever Freddie Freeman hires next, if he hires anyone, has very little work to do, at least for the next five years. You know, last week on my episode, I remarked somewhat tongue-in-cheek, that maybe ESPN was going to play up the whole Freddie Freeman returns to Atlanta storyline during the Sunday night baseball game. Turns out they didn't have to play up anything. There was no need to manufacture a narrative. It was all right there in plain sight. Quite a story, whether ESPN gave it legs or not. Now, if you're the Dodgers, it doesn't matter how Freddie Freeman got here. As of right now, he is leading the team in OPS Plus at 141. He is 7-for-7 seven seven in stolen bases, which I did not see coming. He has been the healthiest player on the team, which isn't particularly healthy right now. And he's second in the league with 24 doubles. Just throw that in. So, so far, he's very much been worth the investment, which is what you need to see three months into year one of a mega contract with a player of his star caliber. This is prime Freddie Freeman. It will not get better than this. In theory. It's always nice when we can start an episode on a positive note, right? <laughs> Are you ready for the rest? <laughs> Here we go. Let's go to Daniel Hudson. Daniel Hudson's season is over. I will link on the show page to the video of his injury from over the weekend. 
It's there for you if you want it. I'm not telling you what to do with it. Watch it. Don't watch it. I don't care. Injuries like his are so, you know, dissatisfying isn't the word because it implies that we can or should be satisfied by someone else's misery. But you know what I mean. Like if Dustin May's UCL snaps because he's throwing a baseball 100 miles per hour, well, okay. That's what happens to UCLs when you throw that hard over and over again. Unless you're Nolan Ryan. If Cody Bellinger's shoulder separates from flailing and diving all over the field, okay, sure. There's a certain logic to that. Daniel Hudson threw a pitch, got a ground ball to his left. He had to change directions after landing on the mound, and then bam, season-ending knee injury. It's a reminder that even the routine things that baseball players do can be really, really challenging in an athletic sense. Cutting sharply from one direction to another on the field in a split section, split second subconscious reaction to a ball that Daniel Hudson had no chance of picking up, by the way. Man, it's not easy, and it's really frustrating to watch. Let's look at the bullpen now for a minute, because it is changing by the week, and not really by choice. The IL right now includes Daniel Hudson, Caleb Ferguson, in addition to Blake Trinan, Tommy Canely, Victor Gonzalez. Those three are all building up to pitch again at some point in the second half, assuming no setback. That's a lot of missing pieces. That's five guys who are expected to be part of the mix. Craig Kimbrell, the closer. He's 13 for 15 in converting saves, but he's made some games closer than they needed to be. He's been tagged with three losses, one in extra innings, so that doesn't really count. Bruce Dark Gratterall has appeared in more games than any Dodger reliever. He's super hot cold. You really never know whether the guy in the batter's box is going to be able to time up Gratterall or not, because for all his speed, that fastball just doesn't have a ton of movement. So if the batter can time him up, Gratterall misses his spot, well, that's how you throw 100 miles per hour and have an ERA in the fours. I'm just not sure who gives you a ton of confidence down there. Like, I think the answer is Evan Phillips and Yancy Almonte, but they were like, what, the number eight and number 12 options going into the season? <laughs> like, Evan Phillips, as a guy who was out of options, was probably in danger of being DFA'd if he didn't perform. That's how fragile his face in the bullpen was. Anyway, all of this goes to say that the odds of the Dodgers trading for a relief pitcher before the deadline are roughly in the neighborhood of 100%. And if it were a little bit closer to the deadline, I would start speculating on names. I think it's getting close to that time, but I'll let that wait at least a week because I think the groups of contenders and also Rams, if you look at the standings, still have some sorting out to do. Let's take a look at this. It's, it's getting weird with three wildcard teams in each league. Fewer teams this year might be willing to sell at, say, seven games under 500 on June 29th compared to a normal year. And that could be tough for the Dodgers because there are seven teams right now between one and seven games under 500. Seven teams. That's like a quarter of the league almost. So there could be a lot of relief pitching available at the deadline. 
there could be relatively little relief pitching available at the deadline. We really don't know yet. Now, I've said this before. Stop me if you've heard this one, but where I think Andrew Friedman really needs to upgrade this roster is his bench. Jake Lamb is the 42nd player to appear in a Dodgers uniform this season. It's appropriate, given the last player in franchise history to wear number 42. We can talk about him in a second. Jake Lamb is a left-handed hitter. He had a 932 OPS at AAA. That'll play in Oklahoma City. He's played mostly first base there. He won't play first for the Dodgers because of Freeman. He probably won't play much third base either. That's where he was mostly when he was with the Arizona Diamondbacks, but he's not really a good defensive player there. And at Spacious Coors Field, biggest outfield in the big leagues, Dave, Dave Roberts had Jake Lamb in left field coming off the bench on Tuesday. Struck out in his only at bat. The guy who has been playing third base at AAA is Miguel Vargas. We've talked about him. Vargas, right now, is in the middle of a 10-game hitting streak, in which he is batting 385 with two home runs, three doubles, and six walks compared to only five strikeouts. If that keeps up, Miguel Vargas will not be in AAA much longer. And if Justin Turner keeps up his 634 OPS, he will not be in the Dodgers starting lineup much longer gotten a lot of rope from Dave Roberts, but push is starting to come to shove. I'm not going to lie, I didn't see this coming from Turner. I really didn't. Maybe I should have. His spring training was not good. He's 37 years old. I just saw him as a classic late bloomer whose swing had done so much for so long that it was hard to see his streak of all-star caliber seasons ever ending. Justin Turner was so, so good from the moment he arrived in Los Angeles up until very recently when he was healthy. Like if Justin Turner changes his swing earlier in his career, maybe that eight-year run is a 10-year run, and now we're talking about him as a possible Hall of Famer. The Dodgers, if they have championship aspirations, they really can't keep Turner hitting the way he is, Cody Bellinger hitting the way he is, and Max Muncy hitting the way that he is all at the same time. Particularly right now when your best player, Mookie Betts, is on IL and the replacement is a platoon of Trace Thompson and Eddie Alvarez. No disrespect for, to those guys, but these are quadruple-A players in their 30s. That is not a long-term solution. Now, you don't need one, right? Mookie Betts is coming back, but the point stands. You've got three hitters who, on any given night, could reasonably go, you know, 0 for 9. Because Muncie will draw, like, three walks. Maybe Muncie is somebody who you can keep in the game, keep in the lineup, rather, because he can take a long at bat, he can draw a walk once or twice. But I'm not sure if his power is ever going to be consistent this season. And I don't know that Miguel Vargas is the answer either. Like, we don't know that Jake Lamb's 934 OPS is going to translate from AAA to the majors. We don't know what Miguel Vargas can do, even with the superlative numbers he's been putting up lately. What I do know is that Justin Turner is potentially a more meaningful acquisition 
to the Dodgers bench than any player who will be available at the deadline. So if Vargas and Edwin Rios, for example, are both in the starting lineup come October, Justin Turner might be somebody who can pinch hit and play a better third base than either of those guys, at least in the standard shift. Um, not just those guys, but half the league. His defensive numbers have actually looked pretty good this year. Maybe that's the way Andrew Friedman plays this. Um, I'm willing to bet money, actually, that if that is not plan A, it's probably plan B, C, D, or maybe E. The Dodgers' internal solutions might not be that bad. We'll see. We're about to find out, I think. Before I take a look ahead to the rest of the week, I want to talk about the last Dodger player to wear number 42. I'm talking, of course, about Ray Lamb. Ray Lamb was a rookie pitcher in 1969, got called up, pitched in 10 games, wearing number 42. Then the Dodgers retired Jackie Robinson's jersey, along with that of Sandy Koufax and Roy Campanella. Lamb switched to number 34, and that was the end of that. No Dodger would ever wear number 42 again. A lot of people don't know that. Numbers back then didn't mean what they mean now. Fred Clare was in the Dodgers PR office at the time. This is years before he became general manager. And every time I've talked to him about retiring Jackie's jersey number, he reminded me that people did not imbue the same significance to uniform numbers in 1969 that they do now. Remember, this is before fans wore jerseys or jerseys or even baseball caps with the Dodgers logo to the ballpark. It's really stunning if you ever see a photo of a crowd from that era. Just the first thing you notice is the clothes. It's just completely different. When Ray Lamb wore number 42 for the Los Angeles Dodgers, few of the fans who were in attendance for any of his 10 games had even seen Jackie Robinson play because he retired when the Dodgers were in Brooklyn. There were no teams on the West Coast, no big league teams. So you didn't necessarily look at Ray Lamb and think, hey, that guy's wearing Jackie Robinson's number. There wasn't the same cultural pretext for making that connection. Certainly, there were no movies named after uniform numbers. <laughs> Pretty sure 42 has a monopoly on that one. Anyway, I thought I would pass along that little historical nugget because Jake Lamb, no relation to Ray as far as I know, is the 42nd player to appear for the Dodgers this season. That is telling of how much significance we give jersey numbers today. <laughs> All right, taking a look ahead, we got four games against San Diego starting on Thursday, and three more against Colorado, four against the Cubs. All of those games are at home leading into the All-Star break, which, of course, will be played right here at Dodger Stadium. It's a nice schedule. It's how you want it to shape up. Dodgers just have to start hitting. Coors Field on Wednesday seems like a good place to start. We've got a special episode lined up for next week. I will get back on a regular schedule, which means, hopefully, next episode drops Monday. Talk to you then.
thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.